I kind of feel that as time goes on, I'm, I'm able to synthesize my perspective or perspectives in practice with these uh, kind of analytical uh, perspectives about the technology. And I think that that's where I'm able to add sharper levels of that analysis and commentary at the end of stories. Yeah. And, and you can do that in ways that a lot of other people can't. And I'm sure it just comes through doing it. It's just like, it's come up on the show before, but Stephen Pressfield's book, Do the Work, is just about showing up and doing it. And that's how you eventually be, go pro at something, right? It's just by, you become a pro by doing it and doing it and doing it. And I'm sure that a lot of your thinking becomes a lot more clear because you write about your thinking. And that, to me, is like the process of actually doing that sharpening. It's like, you you think a lot of things and you're constantly kind of changing and evolving your thinking. But when you write it down and you go through that editing process, it becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. And, and probably at some point you rely on that process to even know what you think sometimes. Right? Like, <laughs> it's a it's a weird thing to talk about, but it's a, I, I understand where you're coming from. No, I think that's true. And in one of Malcolm Gladwell's books, he talks about the importance of 10,000 hours. Right. And if you put 10,000 hours into any anything, I think the first example uses Bill Gates, but he also talks about a ballerina. And, you know, 10,000 hours is this um, somewhat arbitrary but somehow magical threshold where if you put 10,000 hours into something, you you become expert at it. You develop a degree of competency that can really stand apart. And I think that obviously that number is, like I said, arbitrary, but to, to Malcolm Gladwell's um, point in the book, it, there seems to be something about that amount of time. It takes a lot of time. Yeah. It's and like five years I, of a full-time job, basically. Right. And so for Architosh, it was more like, because I don't do this full-time, it was more like 10 years. And and I think it's, when I look at the the, the trend of my experience in Architosh, I'd say that's when things started to really click. It was sort of around year uh, 10 and 11. Wow. And that, that was around 2009, 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, the iPhone had already come already has was already right here and the ipad was just uh just coming out and it was really a series of articles about the ipad Mm. um and when i recognized the importance of sort of anywhere anytime access to your data and with a device that was ideal for the construction site but not only construction site but mobile any mobile location could be your home and it was i had this I have this sense that this was a really important time to do a series of um, interviews with CAD executives all over uh, the world about the importance of the iPad really changing everything for us. And I was fortunate to get on the line with everyone that I really wanted to talk to, from Carl Bass at Autodesk CEO Mm -hmm. to a whole range of other executives, and just to talk about the iPad and what it meant for changing the way we work. PC industry and that that I think that series was a key threshold and mm-hmm. almost a marker for you know this kind of magical moment with 10,000 hours of developing some kind of competency and from that point on things just started to change a little different for me with Architosh next thing I know I was in, invited to go to Copenhagen uh, smart geometry conference uh, mm-hmm. as part of the media group uh, that Bentley brought over and really from that moment on um, that's when all the kind of travel started to happen for me that, you know, that would invite, invited travel. 
which is one of the funnest things about this job. Huge opportunities came out of that. Yeah. So I'm sure. Yeah. Because when you get to travel to conferences, then, then you're in the room with a lot of important people and, uh, uh, you know, they're driving direction and a lot of important firms doing just amazing stuff. And you get exposed exposure to a wide lens of approaches and tools um, and, and ac- tools across different kinds of sectors of work. So it's all been good. Hi there, I'm Evan Troxell. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Welcome back to the Troxell Podcast. My name is Evan Troxell. Nobody uses the Apple Macintosh in the architectural profession. Everybody knows that. (laughs) I can't hold the straight face any longer. We all know that that's becoming less and less true ever since the Mac came out, and then, of course, the subsequent releases of iPhone and iPad, which leads me to this conversation with Anthony Frosto Robledo. Anthony is a licensed architect practicing in Boston, Massachusetts, and he's also a respected CAD and 3D industry writer, editor, and researcher. His primary interest centers on the intersection of computer technology and the design process. He's also an associate principal at Morehouse McDonald and Associates, and he is the founder and editor-in-chief of Architosh.com, one of the world's leading online CAD and 3D publications, providing industry-respected editorial and so much more. So that's Anthony in a nutshell. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation because I really had fun. This was a long time coming for me. Anthony and I have touched base at conferences throughout the years, but we've never had the opportunity to really have a good conversation around the mutual interests that we both have. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Anthony Frosto Robledo. Anthony Frosto Robledo, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you. It's an honor. Yeah. So, architosh.com, this is your, I don't, we were kind of talking about this pre show, but, but side gig, side hustle, uh, but also probably like one of the, as you said, main things in your life. Um, I think that's probably where people would recognize your name from the most. Um, but also, practicing architect, Apple enthusiast, which bleeds over into architosh. There's so much to kind of unpack there. And, Obviously, we share a passion for Apple and Apple products. Uh, I think it probably goes beyond the products, if I'm safe to say that. And then you and I, I think we probably met last at maybe maybe the New York AIA show. Were you at that one, or was it Atlanta? It's been a while. I'm trying. It's been a while. I, yeah. I'm not sure which show it was actually. So obviously, active architect uh, in here in the Boston area. I'm in the Southern California region. We don't see each other on a regular basis. Maybe at a conference here and there. But I think you know one of the things that kind of brought me to you was Architosh.com, the writing on Apple, the work, the reporting that you've done on on tools that I've used throughout my history with Apple. You know whether the, that's FormZ, Electric Image. You know, like going way back here. Like, how did you get started with with Architosh? And like, what's that? How how when was that? That it's got to be like twenty plus years now. It's been twenty plus years. It's, it was it was technically in nineteen ninety nine, but the the site the way it evolved was 
I started with a desire to basically put together a list of all of the apps that were out there for architects that were working on the Mac. Uh, at the time, I was working for Coder Kim in Boston, uh, working for Fred Coder and Susie Kim and doing urban design. We were doing urban design all over the world. It was a very exciting time in my life. This was sort of like 96 through 98, and we were a Mac shop. And um, Apple, of course, during those years was doing absolutely horrible. And uh, people knew I was very passionate about the, the Mac there. And some of the people who were working who were younger than me came up to me one day and said, suggested you should, you should create a website about the Mac in architecture. And it was one of those water cooler moments where I was saying, maybe I should do that. What do you think I should call it? And I think the first word that came up was architecture, and I didn't really like that. And then someone said architosh, and that's really the beginning. And hmm. I, I liked the name so much, I thought, I want to do this. Now, at that time uh, at Coder Kim, we didn't have a website yet. The firm didn't have a website. You know, this is the late 90s. Everything was starting to take off with the Internet. And um, there was a lot of talk about building a website, and people inside the firm were were playing around, experimenting, learning HTML. So I was part of that group. I jumped into that. Everyone was doing it in, independently. And I needed a, I kind of needed a, a subject to practice my HTML skills and, and build the site around something. So those two things just collided, um, the water cooler moment and the desire to learn how to build websites. So I went and did it. And at first, all I wanted to do was just put together a big list. Um, I shared, once I had the site kind of generated, basically scoured the internet to find all the apps and um, put it together in a website called Architosh. And I launched it through the Mac Evangelista uh, user group or listing, uh, or it was an email newsletter, basically. And uh, Guy Kawasaki led that. And within 24 hours, I had just, you know, hundreds of emails from architects around the world saying, this is great. Uh, I don't feel alone anymore. It's, <laughs> it's, That's wonderful. Awesome. it's wonderful to have, you know, a resource like this. So shortly after that, I decided, well, people were suggesting keep us updated on these apps. It's one thing to list them, but keep us updated on what's going on with them. So that that began the news part of it. Right. Wow. And from and from the news, I think maybe I was six months into you know, kind of writing news reports. I kind of do them almost daily. And um I started attending some shows. A Macworld show was always in Boston. That's where I am. Mm -hmm. So I went to the Macworld show, covered that. Um, there was some good people there, like Form Z was there and stuff, and uh, maybe Strata. Yeah. And it was great. I thought, this is a lot of fun. And then one day out of the blue, the Vectorworks people called me. I think it was Minicad still at that time. Yeah. And they said, would you like to talk to Richard Deal and interview him? And I said, I'd love to do that. And that was Sean Flaherty, who eventually became the, the chief executive officer. But at, at that time, he was kind of employee number one and was the CTO. So we, we did the interview, and I put together a feature article on that. And that was really the beginning of sort of interviewing CAD industry and 3D industry execs uh, on Architosh, but I think kind of in general on the CAD industry. I mean, there was, there was obviously Catalyst and other... Uh, existing publications that were around and they talked to the executives but this was more like the real kind of like barbara walters kind of style interview where you're yeah. really trying to ask people tough questions get to know what makes them tick and what's special about their software and their company and that was sort of the beginning of really the framework for architosh 
That's awesome. And and I'm thinking back right now to my 1999 and I was what I was doing. I believe at that point I had a I can't remember at this no, I think this was after my power computing Power Tower Pro Mac clone <laughs> that I had. Right. Um, I did have a Power Mac 7100 when I was in college, but I went to the tower after that. And I think when I was working at HMC Architects, I had a a black G3 PowerBook that I then got rid of and got a titanium PowerBook. So this is a right around that area. And I was doing similar things. I was writing websites. I was I learned, taught myself HTML. I was coding things in Lingo for Macromedia Director to create mm-hmm. interactive CD-ROMs. My portfolio was digital at that point. And uh, I think I wrote the first three websites for HMC on those on those computers um, in an otherwise Windows-dominated environment, right? I mean, our, our firm was entirely on MicroStation, and at that point, MicroStation was on the Mac, so that's what I used. Um, and then after that, you know, I, I went off, I went away from HMC, I did a bunch of visual effects, and I used the tools that you were writing about. You know, I used, I used FormZ from school, I used it at work, but then I also did it on my own and did visual effects and was using electric image. And, and it's, just, it's just amazing to see how things have changed, because even your name, Architosh, is the Macintosh, right? And Apple <laughs> is rarely seen as the Macintosh factory anymore, right? It's iPhones and iPads, and it's services, and it's... Even now, with their transition to Apple Silicon that's coming up, it's rarely about the Mac, and it and even now it's more about conversion of convergence of the Mac and the iOS devices. So it's interesting to see how much things have changed and how what truly Apple was truly an underdog back then. And like you said, they were doing horribly, and now to be you know one of the most dominant companies on the planet is very interesting to watch as all of that has kind of shifted over time. And who knows what will happen in the future. But what a ride that you've been on at the forefront of it in our industry. And I'm sure that, man, it's probably just been like a roller coaster. Yeah, it's been it's been an incredible experience. And, um, you know, I was thinking the other day about some of the people who've helped me along the way. Obviously, people like Pete Evans and Akiko, and there were many others who got involved and wanted help with the site, and they've been very instrumental. But some people, like the folks at macnn.com mm. and other sites, even the macsurfer.com folks, you know, sadly, those those publications aren't around anymore. And yeah. I, I used to look up to those publications. There's a whole family, and it does feel like a family, of people who were really fighting for the Mac in the 90s and, and basically from different you know, different backgrounds. Sometimes they had a print background in maybe they worked for Macworld magazine at one point or Mac user. Other people were just passionate users who learned how to code websites and just just created something and did it. And um, like I did. And so I think that that passionate community was being a part of that, you know, passionate community was part of the, the fun and the energy felt supported. But it's odd that some of those great sites have faded away now and but architosh is still around and, and it's doing better than ever and i think part of it is just having a very narrow focus which yeah. <laughs> ironically we started uh i started to, to to open up about five years ago and the mission statement isn't even about the mac anymore mm. uh, and i think everyone out there who knows me still thinks of 
Architosh, and because of the name too, as being the MacCAD site. But there's really a focus now on trying to not escape that that legacy and that in that history, but to say that we don't have to worry about Apple anymore in yeah. the market. And this isn't about saving Apple or being uh, ever larger island for. Uh, architects in the Mac who felt like they were sort of on an island alone. Mm-hmm. Um, this this is a site that has grown into something that's more general and and focused on everyone in the community and and that's really important to me that people understand that. Yeah, I mean, definitely as things have shifted toward mobile, more and more of our of our daily life at least is is right there with it, and that affects every architect. And I think that's one of the most exciting things about these tools is that you we are getting away from the desktop. And we are getting to be able to do what we do anywhere and share it with more people because of that portability mm-hmm. and bring more people into the fold or, you know, of what's going on with architecture and showing what architects do. And, you know, like there's something magical about sitting down at a, at a table with a pencil and, and a roll of trace and sketching out ideas. And now when you can do that on a device and an airplane and you can do it at the cafe and and nobody does that better than Apple, right? Like, I, let's just say right. that, right? <laughs> let's just put it out there. I mean, it. if you've used an iPad Pro and an Apple Pencil, you know what I'm talking about. Like, it's it's an unbelievable thing because it's the closest we've ever been to that real architectural analog of sketching. And now you can do it anywhere. And you can share it instantly with anybody. And And that, to me, is extremely exciting. And like you said, we don't have to worry about Apple anymore. And now we can focus more on why we do what we do and sharing that with other people and getting them excited about these ideas and the technology, I think to kind of pay homage back to what Steve jobs presented when he presented the iPad for the first time. And it just says, we don't know what people are going to do with this thing. Here's a big sheet of glass, right? And then Mm -hmm. the developers are going to write apps that make this thing do things we never thought of. It's totally true. Right. And, and you see the way that architects have embraced this, medium for lack of a better word at the, at the moment but it's it's very much like just one of those things that's an enabler um via a, amazing technology and now they're bringing that to the mac so like come full circle right and and it's a really again interesting time just when you thought the the world of incremental change is here forever we're, we're going to actually see some some giant bumps again i agree and it, it's um you know, for the last, uh, this last present decade, the teens, um, there was a lot of chatter out there about, you know, how small a percentage the Mac revenue was to Apple's overall revenue. And for a while, you know, there was discussion about, well, iOS, iPads, those kinds of devices will just take over Mac OS and computers. Um, and remember, Jobs always had that famous analogy about cars and trucks. Yeah. And that's how the beginning of the automobile era, there was a lot more trucks than cars. Mm. Uh, and then it kind of all turned around and then we end up with SUVs, right? That's like yeah. seems in, in crossovers. <laughs> so, you know, one thing that I think Steve Jobs did so beautifully for the entire tech industry is he was able to kind of wax poetic about all of this technology in metaphors that added a layer of richness to our thinking about it ourselves. If we didn't have this is not something that Gates gave to us or anyone else. This is something he gave to us. And I think about all the entrepreneurs out there, the, the younger guys, the Zuckerbergs, who have that history of someone who was able to 
you know, look at all of this from the intersection of things. You know, Jobs used to think about it as, you know, the intersection of science and art or the humanities. Mm-hmm. So I think these metaphors are really important. Um, and in terms of Arkitosh and the writing, uh, I think these metaphors are important in terms of thinking about, uh, let's, let's talk specifically about architecture for a second, even though Arkitosh has a broader scope, but primarily, you know, half of the scope, if not more, is on the architecture field. And we know the power of metaphors in architecture, and I think there's a lot of powerful metaphors at play in terms of how architectural production has been taking shape as well. Um, but you are right, it's come full circle, and it's very exciting to think about Apple now, you know, making another chip transition and moving to their own silicon. Yeah, I mean, and one of the themes that has come up on your site for year after year after year is Mac Pro, Mac Pro, Mac Pro, right? Like the the truck, it is the truck. And and what what is Apple's newest, you know, XYZ? Uh, how does that affect the potential of a of a new truck? And and then last year they came out with the new Mac Pro. And now they've just one year later announced this transition, um which I I assume will have huge and lasting effects on what a Mac Pro could be, right? Like transformationally. It's interesting, right? Because we look at these small devices that can outperform medium-sized devices in the Intel lineup in Apple's own offerings. And then you look at the Mac Pro and what the potential is when you start adding the things that the Mac Pro offers, like cooling, like real cooling, and space, and modularity, and all of these other things. And it's like, I, I think we probably haven't seen a taste of what's capable, what Apple's capable of doing in that pro market. And and we know that they're not afraid to charge money for that, real money, like serious, crazy money for it. But at the same time, like it's also the highest performing machines that are available. So what what do you think about this transition and how do you think that it's going to affect the things that we do? Or is it just simply going to be another piece of glass that gets out of the way and it's going to just be all about the apps that are running on it and who cares what the form factor of the machine is? Well, I think uh, in regards to the Mac Pro, and it's it's odd that the timing, right? The timing's odd. It came out um, only a year before this announcement to move to uh, Apple Silicon. Mm-hmm. So um, before it came out, I was wondering if they were going to hold off because there was the rumors and the and the reports about Apple eventually moving to their own processors for a long time. So part of me thought they're going to hold off because if they could put an ARM-based processor inside, they can make a new um, workstation that's much smaller, but not uh, not an odd shape. So it's going to be more conventional. So when they came out with a very large machine, I was actually quite shocked. It has, you know, references to the cheese grater Mac form factor. Um, and it has that kind of gutsy industrial strength look to it. And it's a beautiful machine. But what's exciting to me about it right now in the presence of what's going on with the chip transition is it has a huge envelope in which to, to deal with heat. Mm-hmm. And that's exciting because um, one of the things that they said when, uh, this June at, um, at the Worldwide Developer Conference when they announced the new chip transition is that they were going to design these processors to take full advantage of the thermal envelopes in which they would be functioning in. So that's when I think about that and all the room they have for fans and for cooling and, and just in general, I get excited. I think they're going to, create honestly the most powerful workstation in the world by far Mm. um and i'm not the only one who thinks that um i've I've had the 
privilege of speaking to some developers recently who are working on Mac apps uh, or iOS apps like Istvan Kanadi, founder of and CEO of Shaper 3D, which Shaper 3D, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, is this app that only actually runs on the iPad Pro mm -hmm. and it requires Apple Pencil. But what's stunning about that application is how well it handles mechanical models or any kind of model. Actually, there is a small percentage of architects using it. And what's more stunning about it is what Istvan believes is going to happen in the CAD market when Apple brings uh, Apple Silicon to the Mac. Mm. Uh, he, he really believes that in five to 10 years, no one in the industry is going to have uh, computers as powerful as Apple. Now, this is this is interesting because he, he, he brings up, you know, he bases that argument on a number of things. Um, one set of factors is just the progress that Apple's made with some silicone. So since they've uh, been working on their own chips, their the CPU in the iPhone has improved by over 100 times in performance. The GPU in the iPad has improved by 1,000 times. Yeah. And he makes the point that no one has done anything close to this in the history of development of, of processors. Uh, this is just they've done an, an amazing job once they became a full processor designer. And there's lots of things that, that advantage Apple moving forward when they could combine their own silicone with their own operating system. When we know this, of course, from the iPhone and the iPad. Yep. So all of those advantages that they share on those two products and also the watch now can befall the app, the, the Mac. And I think that leads to some exciting possibilities. I think the most exciting one for me is to see them do things on the chip that can accelerate the metal graphics API and to really accelerate graphics. But I think that what they may also do is create some accelerators that help CAD applications in general. Uh, things that are like the neural engine, but not the neural engine. Yeah, it's, it is that marriage of, or that blending of hardware and software is always been their secret sauce and allows these capabilities that no one thought possible. And then when you start adding in Apple design peripherals that are Again, computers, right? Like the Apple Pencil is really a computer in itself, and AirPods are little computers that sit in your ears, and in the Apple Watch, and things like these, where where it just affords you these insane little integrations, like unlocking your computer and making that faster, and Face ID, and depth mapping, and there's so many examples of like these little tiny things that Apple pays attention to that that other people can't even pay attention to because they don't control all of that. Um, mm -hmm. I think that that is going to be kind of eye-opening for a lot of people who are used to using, you know, what I would just consider dumb hardware paired with somebody else's software, where you'll never get that kind of tight integration that you see with with what what we are able to experience with with some Apple products. And I can see once that gets to the desktop, it's going to be a whole, as they say, a whole nother level, right? It's just gonna it's going to explode the opportunities there for all these things to work together harmoniously. And I mean, this kind of starts to get into this, I, the topic of, of this new Autodesk letter that came out about a week and a half ago now as we record this. Um, and one of the main points in that letter, and we can kind of back up in a moment here and talk about where this came from. But one of the things in there is just performance, right? Performance, performance, performance. This thing is, was written for single-threaded performance. And if Apple released an app or a piece of hardware that only allowed that, like 
everyone would be up in arms for a long, long time. And, and it's just now we're kind of hearing that come through this open letter to Autodesk. But man, like, how is that acceptable anymore? And, and I can only imagine like what the performance gains are going to be in several applications that were, you know, like I use Final Cut Pro, I use Logic, I use these big, heavy apps on the Mac. And the performance gains that were like, they, they alluded to it when they talked about Apple Silicon running Final Cut Pro and how much faster it is and Logic. And on one, one hand, I want to see those things running on an iPad hardware. That would be amazing. But, but on the other, I can't wait to run those on an Apple Silicon-based Mac um, because of those performance gains. And again, like this kind of goes back to the tools that we use as architects on a daily basis and mm-hmm. the development cycles of that and where the attention is put and where it's not put. That to me is kind of a maybe maybe a, a new an avenue we can talk about here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned the Revit thing, but before we jump into that, I because people who are are in the know about apps in the AEC space know that Revit is you know for the most part single threaded, and that's one of the big complaints um, that our modern hardware more and more has CPUs or multiple CPUs with a lot of cores. So why are we not using those cores and uh, along those lines, uh, the modern workstation and CAD, uh, any kind of CAD industry, but particularly architecture, more uh, these days has rendering apps now integrated yeah. into the workflow. And you know, the big change that started happening in our industry, the architecture industry, came about about three or four years with Lumion and then Twinmotion, uh, then then Enscape, with these very very accessible rendering tools that the average architect could suddenly uh, engage with and and get good results, much like how SketchUp came along, and the average architect could really touch that and get good results. So it's sort of uh, it's difficult now because any rendering tool wants to use lots of cores. We all know that, um, but how do you balance buying the best workstation when your when one of your main tools, your BIM tool, is only single using just a single threaded uh, workflow to the chip. And yet your rendering tools are ideally configured for multiple cores, lots of them. So it's, it's difficult. And, and that's, that's what, that was one of the things that came out of that group of British architects who were complaining about rabbit, but to back up a little bit, you know, about Apple's uh, prospects in the CAD industries and in architecture in particular, um, some of, you know, Autodesk's rivals, uh, and maybe Autos too. They're they're already starting to look at AI and machine learning operations and what you could do with that technology to speed up architectural workflows. So I, I personally like um, what Rixus CAD BIM has been doing with trying to generate uh, automated things um, like details and and sections and uh, indexing elements. That's probably the most exciting. Is that you know, their their solution uses machine learning AIs to intelligently determine what's a window, what's a door, what's a wall, what's a ceiling. And it frees the architect to just model mm-hmm. and not be caught up with palettes that determine what you're going to do, if you're going to do a wall or a slab or a window. And but just a model and then and then the AI can then kind of understand what these things are and then properly classify them. Now, I'm not sure how involved that machine learning AI is for that kind of task, but I think it's a taste of, of things to come. And then there are other people doing different things with AI, like what Vectorworks is doing with AI at the rendering level, 
uh, taking pictures like a like a Picasso painting and generating a, 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 literally like a rendering engine from a photo of a Picasso painting mm-hmm. and and then be able to apply that kind of stylistically to any image that you want to render and I find that really fascinating that that's really artsy and interesting um, so I think machine learning and AI are going to be tremendously helpful on multiple levels both artistically and in terms of production and Apple's got a neural engine dedicated to these kinds of algorithms so that sets that could really set Apple apart in addition to the general speed uh, at which you know they're probably going to excel you know the big the big advantage the arm arm processors have over Intel is that they're already on a smaller process so we're talking seven nanometers versus 14 or 10. So there's a couple of process steps there. It gives, you know, the chips, they can be smaller, uh, less hot, and they can pack more, um, they can be bigger and pack more transistors, and they can just do more. So I think there's a number of vectors here that are going to give Apple um, some really big advantages over Intel. And of course, uh, I have these debates with, with Akiko Ashley, our West Coast editor, who's a big fan of AMD and the new Threadripper. Mm-hmm. So... It's not that Apple's not going to have great competition. They are, and, and who knows what Intel will will be able to pull out of um, their labs in the next year or two. Mm-hmm. But I think Apple has um, some great prospects, and um, uh, I hope that they they pay pay a lot of attention to performance, and they truly do live up to delivering the most performance for all their enclosures because they're. Mac Pro enclosure that they just gave us is very large, yeah. and uh, it, it, it you can do so much with that machine. That's a machine you can really move into, and um, and it would be a great machine for a lot of architects who really want to keep a machine for five or seven years and tinker with it and get you know a lot of bang for the buck. But as you and I know, uh, there's lots of architects doing wonderful things on iMac Pro or just the regular iMac. Right. And of course, the mobiles and the laptops specifically in the Mac, MacBook Pro. There's, so there's a lot of potential for them. And I think they're going to sell a lot of computers in the next few years. Yeah, I think one, one thing that I'm really excited about is the potential for form factors to come along that we haven't thought of with this transition. Because what you're now talking about is the desktop type applications being available on lots of different potentially smaller and lighter form factors. And again, kind of getting back to that portability aspect of and sharing aspect of architecture and getting away from our desks more, I think is going to be a huge step forward. And, you know, that's one thing that's that I, I think this comes back to that Revit open letter and just talking about AEC software in general is that it is very desktop bound or very high end laptop bound. And it's not operating on your phone. It's not in the cloud. It's single threaded this, or it's GPU intensive that, or it requires some serious hardware to pull off. And the ability for those things to start happening in the cloud is really not a hardware discussion at all. Like you're still talking about doing that on hardware, but you're talking about doing it somewhere else. And it really comes down to the software developers and where they're putting their attention. So, you know, Revit's 20 plus years old now, it was not written with today in mind, as it's stated. There is supposed to be something that comes along and replaces Revit. They've been talking about it for years. 
Right. And so to me, like that's really where things get interesting, right? As far as like the software goes, the thing, the tools that we actually use to get the job done to produce the the sets of drawings or the BIM models or any, you know, whatever the deliverables are for the project. But it really does, to me, come. it opens up the possibility when Apple makes a shift like this for people to say, hey, let's rethink how we're doing things here. Or are we doing things how we should be doing them based on this new future that Apple is beginning to paint? Because they do shake up the industry when they make decisions like this. Companies do follow their lead. So not not saying everybody does, um, you know, and architecture is definitely not followed into the, the Apple camp uh, as far as like market share and all those things. But I think that there's potential for that to happen. And at least this puts the conversation back out there to the software developers who we depend on for everything that we do. I mean, our deliverable where I work is completely based on Revit, right? And Autodesk totally knows that. So when it comes to rethinking or just taking a step back for Autodesk or for any other number of software developers and looking at this major shift that's happening on the hardware side, I'm hopeful that that those conversations get into the software development side because architects want to work differently, or maybe we can design a new way to work together. Um, I think there's huge potential there. Oh, I agree. I agree. And your your comment about new form factors is is echoes what uh, a Shaper 3D CEO feels as well. And it's not just because he started on a mobile device, the iPad, with the Apple Pencil as a requirement, but he really fundamentally believes that. And um, not a lot of people know this, and I certainly didn't until I spoke to him, but, you know, Shaper 3D is the fastest growing CAD system in the world right now. Wow. Nothing has grown as fast, this fast, since the SolidWorks explosion. He told me recently in a in an interview, which will be turned into a feature soon in Arkintosh, that they have 16,000 paying customers. And that's for a CAD application on the iPad Pro with the pencil as a requirement. That's, that's a good amount of people. And it's certainly more than uh, what Onshape had as paying customers uh, after many years uh, and a lot of venture funding. Mm. They had 5,000 paying customers. And, and eventually they, they were acquired by PTC. They have a new home there. But you know, I think the point that I'm trying to make is that the Shaper 3D is a testament to the fact that people do want to work in different kinds of uh, modes, more mobile modes on the factory floor, at home, during travel. They want to be able to uh, create uh, using different means. Uh, and, you know, in the pencil, it's a wonderful tool to, to sketch with. We know that from you know, interfacing with it on iPads and so forth. But to see it used uh, so successfully in a mechanical CAD tool, which has a little bit of traction in the architectural market, they actually feel that they can take on SketchUp. So I agree with what you're saying. And I think in terms of what's happening with Revit in this little rebellion, I think that there's really three fundamental issues. And one of them, of course, is the, the development trajectory and People feel it's just that they've it's slowed down for architects, uh, and they acknowledge that in their letter to the group back and to the, their open letter, you know that they've been focused on, well, they've been focused on engineers and contractors because they believe very strongly that a BIM platform is only as good as getting every, you know, the A and the E and the C, and honestly the the O and the M components in the building life cycle, mm-hmm. and. Everyone needs to be on board. This is the promise of BIM. So I get that. But 
several years ago they came up with project quantum and they they, they teased everyone with that at au and yeah. um then they then it turned into project plasma i believe and yeah. and it was it wasn't necessarily they didn't say it was going to be the future of rabbit but they said it was going to be the future of something and it was implicitly implied yeah. that the, this you know that rabbit had uh had days on it you know mm-hmm. and, and it's the future was something that was cloud driven they showed a completely different kind of workflow it was a very right. interesting workflow and that, where did that stuff go? It's kind of, it's kind of disappeared. And yeah. that's kind of, you know, this is why people are kind of upset. And it doesn't help to have, you know, half a dozen different licensing changes and models being thrown at customers um, during this process as well. And, you know, their letter was very interesting because uh, they kind of were trying to get Autodesk to acknowledge the mindset transformation at Microsoft under Nadella and mm-hmm. Really, what they're saying is they want the company to show more empathy and more of a spirit of true partnership. It's one to say one thing to say you're a partner to your customers, and another to really be a partner. Yeah. And um, I'm I'm not here to cast judgment on Autodesk at all. They're a fantastic company doing amazing things. They have incredibly talented people there, but their customers have a right to say when they're not happy, and they took it public this time. Yeah, and it's interesting how many decided not even to attach their names to that letter, even though they helped pen it, because of fear of some kind of retribution by that. And so that kind of speaks to the the partnership that you were just talking about. Yes, and um, you know, I I I think you know a lot of users on other platforms will say, uh, I would never get in a relationship like that. Uh, you you should not be, you know, there's that saying, you should a government. Uh, you should not be fearful of your government. Your government should, should be fearful of the people. Mm. Well, I don't think you should be fearful of your software company. Right. Um, that's That seems crazy. But I think the nuance of that has to do with specific deals that certain companies have. And as they've made transitions into different types of license licensing yeah. models, there may have been sweetheart deals in those transitions and uh, they don't really want to rock the boat, but they yeah. contributed their data. But I think Autodesk's statement feels sincere, and I think they're going to address the licensing. But it's not going to be easy because one of the things that came out of all of this and my discussions with one of the firms, who, one of the original firms who was on the letter, which is um, Brown's um, Scott Brownrigg. Uh, was one of the firms in London. And I spoke to Simon Jardine, who's a uh, technology director and partner, and, and Anna Maddock, uh, which is kind of a fun name. She's the director of digital practice. And, you know, I spoke to Simon first, and I asked him, I said, if you guys are so unhappy, why why don't you use a different tool? And maybe it's his naive question, but uh, to ask a very large practice, but his answer was very interesting. He said, no one else has the gravitas of, of Autodesk in the market. And I said, is gravitas really important? And he, he then kind of unpacked that and said, um, it is. Uh, it has to do with large ecosystem, ecosystem of tools and, and yeah. people and, and, and skills around it. And that, that mattered a lot. And he also added, though, in certain sectors, and they do rail, they don't use Revit because in certain sectors – um, like rail, they use Bentley, and that's mm-hmm. because clients or um, stakeholders want them to. Mm-hmm. So the way I understand this is that, and speaking with Anna later, she really kind of made it 
a, a bit clearer by saying that it's not about gravitas so much. What that really means, what it really is, is the marriage. And for firms like hers and other big firms in the list, from Zaha Hadid and others, they, they're in a marriage. That these kinds of, when you pick a BIM tool, it's a significant investment. Huge. And it's a, it's a huge investment. And, and it's more like a marriage. So I said, if this is a marriage, then what does the letter represent? Is this... Is this like serving papers for threatening for divorce? And she said, no, this is serving. This is the letter that says we need to go to counseling. Yeah. And I thought, that's fantastic. That is. And okay, that's great because when you get to go to counseling, you, you have a chance to turn things around. Right. And I think Autodesk has a big chance to turn things around and they need to take all of this to heart. And I think they will. But I think they have a lot of work. I do think they have a lot of work ahead of them because the licensing models of subscription in particular is a delicate one. I think we're living through that now with the pandemic, and I think we're going to see more of that as the pandemic rolls out and the economic impact of the pandemic. Because one of the things that firms could always do when there was an economic downturn is they could skip updating the next year. Right. They could use technology at, which is a big part, which is a big chunk of money. Mm. And they could use that to control um, their bottom line a little bit so they can maybe keep people instead of machines. Because um, people are ultimately the most important part. And when you're on subscription and your software stops working, if you don't renew, yep. that's difficult. So they've lost that throttle, you know, uh, of being able to dial back expenditure in IT you know, and so they can't get by and just use the previous year's version. And one of the things that, um, so I think on some level, the software industry is removing some of their risks to economic uh, waves and putting it on the design professionals. Right. Uh, and I, if this is a true partnership, I think they need to understand that that needs to be a fair, there needs to be a fair arrangement there. Maybe it means that your subscription costs go down. Maybe there's um, another. Maybe it means that they're not going to have named licenses, which means that every person that's an employee uh, is attached to a license, no matter how uh, much which, they use it. Yeah, no matter if they're a manager and they only use it for one day out of the week, right. um, and they pay the same amount as a junior architect who's doing Revit full time. Right. So I think there's a lot of work to be done. But I, I found it very interesting. What were your thoughts? Well, it, it was written from a point of view I thought that was like a, not a cry for help, but it but it isn't, it wasn't like an ultimatum, right? It was kind of that letter for counseling, I thought. And what's interesting is some of the responses that I've seen to the letter regarding shareholder value, right? As I, as I look right now at the Autodesk, market summary it's at 243.57 and it was on the 27th the day that this happened 239.69 so it's actually the share price has even gone up in the last week and a half since that letter came out and you would think that that letter would have been eye-opening and to to shareholders and and what's interesting to me regarding share price for any publicly held company like Autodesk is you hear a lot of people talk about how that is the responsibility of the CEO of the company is to guarantee, you know, is to raise share price, right. For the investors of the company. And I kind of don't think that that's true. I, I mean, that might be true for some companies, but I think it's for the company to be 
financially responsible with my investment in that company. It doesn't mean at all costs raise the share price. Of course, that would be a nice thing, but it doesn't mean that it happens all the time and it can't be guaranteed. A funny story is like I was at AU a couple of years ago. It was the year that they announced the um, ESRI partnership. So I think that was 2017 or 2018. And during the keynote section, I ran back to go to the bathroom and I'm standing right behind the CEO, Andrew Anagost. And what's he doing? He's looking at his phone. Guess what he's looking at? He's looking at the Autodesk stock price. And so when when you see that going on, you can see like he's about to deliver a keynote or he's going to be talking about a partnership. He wants to see the immediate changes. And that is his focus. And I really do believe that that has been Autodesk's focus um, for many, many years now. And that to me is where that relationship really falls apart because the people who you're selling your software to are not necessarily the people who are investing in your company. They're investing in a different way. They may or may not be, I should say. And so you probably immediately have conflicting interests there. And from the architecture side of AEC that that I work in, and we are using Revit, and that's where Revit started for architects, and now we see it shooting off into all these other avenues, MEP, structural, you know, all this other coordination tools, BIM 360, and we see the prices continue to go up for subscription and named user licenses so that they can control costs and they know exactly who's using it and how much they're using it and what data they're putting into it because they're also hosting that data on the cloud. They're learning a lot about us. They're putting that fee structure on architects to develop everything around architects. And that's why Revit feels so stagnant, right, for architects because they're pumping money into all these other places trying to raise share value. So this is a very tangled, crazy situation that we find ourselves in. And I think that that letter was about as nice as those architects could have put it. They're clearly frustrated. I mean, anybody who uses Revit on a daily basis knows that we didn't ask for XYZ new feature in Revit 2021. We asked for you to fix the 800 other things that we use every day that keep getting ignored. So this is a very complicated relationship. It is not working very well. And again, I feel like that was the nicest letter that could have been written without actually saying we're getting a divorce because that is a whole other story, right? I mean, look how much investment these firms have in Revit. Our firm alone is, it's huge. It's BIM managers. It's license management. It's training. It's People have built their careers on learning this piece of software. And so when somebody says, why don't you use something else? It's like, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, there's no right. way. How? Yeah, if you're a small firm, maybe. But but like, do you, you don't you don't even understand what you're saying when you ask that question to a firm the size of ours. It's a it's an incredibly difficult question to even answer. Right. Because there's it's it goes so deep. I, that was a very like all over the place kind of an answer. But. But that letter, again, like it was one of the nicest ways I think they could have put it. And they actually laid it out very well. And there's basically three or four points that they're asking to be addressed. Yeah, I think it's a, lo- a nice letter, too. I, I agree with all those points. But at the end of the day, there are firms who do make the leap, who, who do switch platforms. Yeah, it can be done. I'm not saying it can't be done, but but also understand the the gravity of that statement, right? It, that is oh, a huge, re- yeah. Well, it's, uh, you, I think these things have to be done uh over long periods of time 
it's interesting to just talk to this one firm, uh, Scott Brownrigg, who they do have a, a, a rail sector and they, and it's a mature sector that they do well in. And, you know, Bentley is, is very strong in that sector. And it brings into question notions about how BIM might want to evolve um, as platforms in the industry. And mm-hmm. I think for uh, open building station designer, which is a kind of a key new tool and one that Pete and I um, gave our nods to at AI a few years ago, the idea of sort of specialized workflows developing for certain types of building types or sector types. I think there's, there's some compelling possibilities there and you could, you could develop advantages that a general BIM tool, and I'm not saying I'm not necessarily labeling Revit a general tool, but I think, I think they'd like to believe that it's the tool that all architects can use. But I, I've long uh, told people who've asked me, uh, architect readers and people I meet, uh, what tools should I use? I always start with what kind of product projects do you do? Yeah. What, you know, how big is your firm? What region are you in? There's so many layers to the, yes. to the puzzle about how, uh, what ta- what technology you actually decide to adopt. You also have to look at management and their personalities. And we're living in an era where uh, the, the the predominance of firm leadership is still, you know, and owner ownership is still sort of in the 60s and older. Yeah, a lot of them never even touched any of this technology. Right. And uh, but they manage firms through this digital analog to digital trans uh, transformation. So I think that you know when I spoke to animatic about um about rail she made the point well there are other other things that we do other sectors where we could see possibility using other tools you know housing where it's things are kind of straight up you know i asked her to explain why data centers require you to stay on revit and she uh, explained a little bit of the details because the engineers absolutely require because the engineers are using uh specific things that that they've developed that are in revit um Mm -hmm things that are part of maybe the larger Revit ecosystem and, and whether add-ons, plugins, or, or Revit families, or, or just specialized tools that make their work doing data centers very effective. So they would like them to use Revit for data centers, and there's not a really good reason to not to, other than maybe the general problem with what's going on. But, you know, for other types of sectors and building types, you know, if you're doing rail or uh, other kinds of transit or airports, those buildings tend to be very exciting or can be and have very interesting roofs and forms. And that's where you get into grasshopper and dynamo and generative design. And so that's not a strong point for Revit or any really any BIM tool, but it's a strong point for Rhino and grasshopper and dynamo and those kinds of tools. So maybe the, the takeaway maybe for other competitors of Revit with all of this letter thing is that they should start to focus on key ver- like not vertical niches, but but sector niches and building type niches because there's a lot of tools required for all of this work and Autodesk can't ha- can't master them all and there's different federations of tools that can come together that are probably ideal for certain types of sectors and building types and I see that as a possibility. And one example is Vectorworks. Um, you know, they've sort of are the strongest person with BIM in the landscape market. Um, with with their landmark tool, and there's really no other tool like it. There's well, there's kind of an add-on to AutoCAD, 
that is very strong and popular amongst landscape architects, but it's not so BIM focused. So Vectorworks has sort of a niche there and they have also a niche with theater kinds of uh, buildings. Um, but it's from the point of view of Spotlight, which is everything about um, performance entertainment venue design. And so I, I could see them developing a tool that helps the architects who do those kinds of spaces maybe have some strengths that tie into Spotlight in the same way Bentley has tied in their, you know, fundamentally it's a microstation underneath, but their open buildings designer, um, open building station designer tool, how it uh, plugs into some of Bentley's other uh, more technical solutions that have to do with, with transit. Yeah. So I think there are possibilities there. And, and I think the big thing that the, the letter is also speaking to is that they need better interoperability and they need Revit to respond to that request in a more earnest way and a more aggressive way. Absolutely. I mean, that's been one of the largest themes in the architectural kind of landscape in the last 10 years at AU, right? I mean, if you do a search, I think I've seen this go around on Twitter around that show, and it's like just do a search for interoperability on the AU class schedule and see how many classes show up. And that's what people have been clamoring for 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 years and years and years. And that's because Revit is not a specialized design tool, right? So you've got to use all these other specialized tools to kind of fill in the gaps. And you don't want to redo that work every time you get back into Revit to ultimately deliver the construction documents. So that interoperability is key. And so this complaint, I think, is actually, there's never been a better time than right now for that to be addressed because so many people are addressing it. I mean, what McNeil is doing with Rhino Inside is an incredible example or what Proving Ground is doing with Conveyor. Like there's these one button solutions or or in McNeil's case, you're actually running Rhino and Grasshopper inside of Revit. So if you happen to use Rhino for your geometry early on in the design process, you're not going to lose all that work when you take it into Revit later, right? You can automatically transition those elements into Revit elements uh, as long as you took some care when you were building them. Um, so it's funny that that was one of the main things because it's also one of the main things that people are actually putting their money into addressing, no, not really Autodesk. But I, I think what people are asking there is for Autodesk to specifically make it easier to work with all these other tools. But Autodesk has really never had the viewpoint of offering that kind of thing to their customers, right? They want to own it all. That's why they buy all these other companies and they try to either figure out ways to integrate them or kill them off, right? So that they're not competing against them. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know. I think there's a, a catch-22 there because uh, people are really actively working on that and they're coming out with some really great products to do so. And in many cases, they're cheap or free. Um, not always, but, but Autodesk has always been very much a, a file type lock-in kind of a company always i agree and i i think it's stems from maybe uh microsoft's history a little bit and um spe specifically with office and uh, if you can get that you know if you can get the 90 percent of the world to use one tool mm -hmm. uh the network effect is so powerful it's you're going to hold on to that market for a long time but the problem in this industry is that there hasn't been any real productivity uh, for 25 years. Right. 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> or it was a longer, right, 30 plus years. <laughs> and people are working very hard to solve that. So, you know, you look at what Graphisoft just introduced uh, with their integrated 
design uh, with you know several of the Nemechek uh, sibling companies, you know specifically to structural analysis tools and Archicad, and essentially being able to communicate almost in real time between these tools without having to pass IFC models back and forth. Mm-hmm. Instead, using an analytical model, which is like a wireframe uh, with really that's with a new file format that's um, Excel based. Uh, and very accessible to peek into, and being able to have that technology talk very simply and directly to parameters in all of these other objects that make up buildings, whether they're walls, curtain walls, slabs, roofs, and beams and columns. And so all of the updates that architects need to do with structural engineers and vice versa can happen in a different kind of way they can happen in more real time and they can happen without having to pass models back and forth which you then need to check with tools uh, for class detection like Navisworks. and i think that is a radical improvement to you know thinking through ways to work more efficiently and so that's a real exciting development and they're not the only one who's thinking along those lines there are some other people uh groups of people and architects will be writing about that very soon um, that are also thinking that what the tools should do is not send models back and forth in IFC format. What the tools should do is learn how to open up APIs that, so that the APIs can talk to each other. The tools can talk to each other via the APIs and that specifically parameters that the geometry parameters and other non-geometry parameters can share data. And so that we can have everything sort of wired up. Yep. And that, that will really democratize the various tool chains in the industry and the players in the industry in a, in a way that I think is very liberating and, and will bring some freedom to professionals so they can, there'll be more competition, but also people can really just, they can determine what's best to breed for them and their workloads and their sectors. And, and they can stick to it without the, the, the kind of looming pressure that they have to be on board with everyone else. Yeah, I, I I agree, and and just having that kind of live data mindset rather than a file format mindset is is really liberating when it comes to tools and what can talk to what through various APIs and a lot of this the heavy lifting being done in the cloud and then just displaying it on a monitor is uh is another liberating kind of thing, kind of taking us back to the Apple and the tablet of glass kind of a form factor. The the reason that's possible. I would hope that those devices can get even thinner and even lighter is that the heavy lifting doesn't necessarily have to be done on the device. Mm -hmm. That doesn't work for everything, but for the stuff that we're talking about right now, it totally can. It doesn't have to be absolutely real time when it gets into the graphical nature of it, like kind of the video game walkthrough nature of a project or some VR kind of a thing, then yes, it does need to be done, but most likely on the device because you need the responsiveness. But for a lot of the other stuff we're talking about, especially when you're talking about distributed workforces and you're talking about multi-consultants on a project and lots and lots of hands touching a model, you know, depending on the project size and the location and all those various things, it makes more sense for that to not be on the device and to be in the cloud and just have a display, you know, at your fingertips. So to me, that is a, a very exciting development in the application workspace that we're playing in on a daily basis. And to me, that is going to be the major uh, place where things develop over the next few years to really enable people to 
get out of the file format mindset and get into the data streaming mindset. And like you said, then you then you're working with kind of fundamentals and it doesn't necessarily matter which application you're using. Hopefully, you can use the best one for the job and companies can realize that they can build a purpose-built tool for specific times and places and they don't have to be everything to everyone, which to me is, you know, you don't get anything great, you just get some stuff that I think as we're seeing kind of functions on a day-to-day basis, but it isn't something that is a joy to use. And therefore you get open letters like this where it's like, man, I really hate using this piece of software that my job depends on and that my industry depends on. Right. I think, you know, the IFC format is is still incredibly valuable. And so file formats are still going to be with us, but obviously IFC is an industry standard that's open. And I think that Autodesk can do uh, even more to really push that format to improve it. And I also think the Open Design Alliance taking over um, the development of tools to build better IFC toolkits so that software developers can um, start to use sort of a unified collection of IFC tools that they can embed in all their applications that will bring about better continuity and, and, and a higher quality product. So I'm hopeful that IFC will continue to improve and that Autodesk will also continue to back it and other standards like it, like BCF. But I also think that the way applications continue to connect to each other via data and the focus on data rather than files, like you say, is really pivotal. And I, I'd like to see that happen for a couple of reasons. One is I think there's, the industry is missing tools that can help AAC professionals be more like true agile companies mm-hmm. and where you're able to, to communicate outside of email into um, cloud-based tools uh, in real time with your teammates in a way that's very efficient and you're able to see the big picture, but also understand your role within your specific workflow for that week. And those tools exist beautifully in the software space and the software industry loves these tools. And we don't have anything like that yet. Right, right. And I think we really need it. I think that that's a big part of the productivity puzzle mm. because I tell you, email is, is a productivity killer. It's not it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just not it. It's, Agreed. Yeah. I, I think one other thing that I think that sparked uh, a thought in me regarding that open letter was uh, the companies, the way that they were kind of asking for things led me to believe that, and I think this is just a larger problem set for our profession is that companies aren't investing in people to do training in these softwares to become experts. Like, like let's be honest, these, the software that people use on a daily basis is deep and complex and it changes quite often. And it doesn't seem to me like, like what's funny to me is like, it seemed like the things that they were asking for, like the software does that, but your people don't know how to do it. Therefore you don't know that it can be done. And and to me, that is where companies can't really point the finger at anybody else except themselves. And and I guess what they're really asking for is for it to be easier, which I'm not arguing with that. Like the applications are incredibly complex and there is stuff buried and hidden and there's better ways to do things that the word never gets out and yada, yada, yada. But there's also a level of kind of personal accountability that needs to happen there. And those firms do need to take a good hard look at what they invest into their people to learn these complex pieces of software because I don't know that like, can we ever count on this stuff getting easier to use? I mean, we see it happen in some places with 
iOS devices and the applications that run on it and the way that developers are and enabled to rethink how people interact with computers. But that's not happening in architectural desktop software, right? It's getting worse and worse and worse. It's getting layered upon layered upon layered and 20-year-old code getting patched over and patched over. Like, look at Photoshop, look at AutoCAD, look at any of these older generation tools that are still in wide use today. They're deep, they're complex, and we we want people to be able to operate them expertly, and yet we don't want to pay for that to happen because we don't have time for that. So I don't know. Do you have any thoughts around that line of thinking that kind of came to mind? Uh, yeah, and it actually kind of aligns up with some things that Anna said from Scott Brownrigg. She was talking about the use of SketchUp in her firm and how when Autodesk bundled all these tools together, they, they bundled in Formit, which is sort of a competitor. Yeah. But their users were finding that Formit simply couldn't do, they couldn't get out of it what they wanted to get out of it. And they knew they could with SketchUp. So on one hand, the value proposition that was put forth to the firm was, we'll sell you a suite of tools for X dollars. And it's you're going to have better value because we're combining, we're giving you five tools instead of just one or two. And then you have to go buy these other things. But as she said, the amount of training to retrain people, specifically like the kids at uni, who already come into the firm with lots of SketchUp experience and skill, was just canceling out any possible savings, even if the tool could match up to SketchUp's abilities. And it couldn't in in her eyes. So uh, I guess the question is, why compete against something that's so well-established versus trying to integrate it into your your environment? So I think, I, I honestly think that the BIM platforms need to think of themselves as canvases. And BIM started really with the promise of accelerating working drawings by building a model. And then you have this infinite ability to look at it in different ways and generate many more sections. And uh, because you're you're basically your computer screens is a camera uh, that can now look at a a virtual building. So and make drawings from it in an instant. I think that's still the center heart strategy of what BIM is about from the perspective of what, what where the value is for architects. Now, I understand the value is different for other people. For building operators, they, they need data. Uh, for contractors, they need cost and time. So that's also data. They need different things. But for what we do, and even the engineers, we need a mixture of data and geometry. But for us, geometry really is the, the driving force. And so I think where the tools are sort of where they need to let go, I think they need to let go of trying to be front-end tools and instead trying to be a canvas for front-end tools, try to talk really well to things like Rhino. Instead of competing with Grasshopper and Rhino, to make a great partnership. Complement them, yeah. Yeah, complement them. These tools are already signaling to you by their use that they're strong and they're effective. So partner with them instead. Find better ways to make that partnership more streamlined and work on what is what it, what it means to be the ultimate canvas for the virtual building. I think there's going to be more and more tools in the front end. We're seeing a lot of generative design. We're seeing AI and machine learning infused um, workflows that figure out all kinds of things that help architects make decisions with early schematic design, even pre-design. So there's a whole realm of technology there that's ju- just kind of in the nascent stage that is coming at the industry. So I think that rethinking the way BIM 
fundamentally operates on almost, you know, I talked about Steve Jobs and analogies early on. I think BIM needs to be thought of as like the ultimate canvas for the virtual building. Yeah. And then with you, with interoperability, like one of the things that's happening with Celebri, and this was an article that just got published in Architosh, that's so not inside information, is they're looking at how to bring Celebri into other tools mm. rather than it being you go to Celebri. Yeah, it's kind of like the, the Rhino inside model. Right. Bring Celebri into a, a BIM make it, tool. Make it a plugin. Yeah. Make it a, like a plugin or, or something in the cloud. Right. And I think that kind of strategy is what will really help the industry. Yeah. It's, it's funny because that's not an Autodesk sanctioned thing, right? McNeil writing Rhino inside is definitely not something that I'm sure that they didn't see coming. And I'm sure that they didn't, McNeil didn't ask permission to do that. Anybody can write an add in. That's right. So it's it's interesting to me to kind of see this kind of special ops thing happen. And basically because so many people have been asking for it for so long and they're like, okay, we're going to have to do this ourselves because these small developers who are doing it and making inroads can't keep it up. They don't have you know, the resources to continue on with it and support it and do all these things. It's been amazing to watch over the last year how they've taken off with this this initiative. And the adoption of it is huge because everybody's already using that tool. So I, I really like the idea of this complementary tool attitude. And again, I think it's kind of at odds with the general Autodesk thinking, which is everything to everybody. Let's do it all in-house. Let's do it all in one package so that we can sell a suite of tools of which you're going to use two. Um, but that's okay for us because we're going to charge for all of them, right? So it really does seem to be a mismatch in priorities um, for what the customers who actually use the tools are looking for versus you know, what the executives or maybe the shareholders are expecting. Yeah, I think that strategy needs to change for them. They, they can't be everything to everyone. And they know that and they've said it, but the kind of the writing's on the wall now and they, they need to start showing evidence that they are actually embracing a more interconnected strategy. Yeah. I mean, the, so you asked me about tools and uh, things that I like that are fun. You know, I, I would never be able to run Architosh without this, the tools that I, that I use every day, uh, tools like Asana, uh, and how Asana can talk to Gmail and how, you know, if I was using Procore because I was in a contractor, uh, how I can get, you know, Procore to talk to Gmail or Asana. So I think we're in the age of integration. Yeah. And I think BIM can go a long way for a lot of, of the industry without having to radically undo itself mm-hmm. uh, and rebuild itself. I think these tools Obviously, some of them need to be recoded. Revit might be one of them that needs to be deeply recoded for modern processors. But I think the integrations that you're speaking about add so much value. And we kind of saw it early on with SketchUp, right, when it came up and it had the, the warehouse of tools and stuff and apps. And so we have an ecosystem around that. And, and it, it's, it's incredibly valuable with all these apps. And we saw that the iPhone with the App Store. So integration and apps talking to each other is the only path forward. Yeah, I've, I've heard it put that, you know, the saying used to be that software is eating the world, and it still is in many cases, but now it's a, the API is eating the world. Yeah, APIs are eating the world. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's probably, we could go on and on and on, but I would love to start wrap the, wrapping this up and get a couple of personal things out here on the table because I ask this question to all of the people who come on the show, and I'm hoping that you'll play along here. Um, 
Could you share a personal hack? You just started to talk about some of the tools you use every day on Architosh, and this doesn't have to be a tool. It could be uh, something you do physically. It could be analog, digital, physical. It doesn't matter to me. But what, like something that you do to help yourself perform better? Um, it's interesting to use the word hack. I just recently kind of hacked in Calendly, the calendar application to my Gmail, and uh, learned how to connect it to my calendars on Gmail or G Suite, and I love it. It's um, it's a beautiful thing because obviously we started the show talking about that I um, am a practicing architect and also the editor of Architosh, and um, so I have two worlds, and that means I have two sets of appointments. So I found <laughs> yes. it fantastic that I could keep separate calendars for these two worlds, but they can talk to each other, and uh, I love the fact that you can just have a URL and say to someone, go click on that URL and find yourself an appointment time that works for you and I can show up. Yeah. And I think that's fantastic. It's, it's, I've only been doing it for a couple of weeks, but I, I absolutely love it. It's, it's fantastic. Totally second that. It's, it's been a fantastic tool for me as well. Right. So that's probably my best hack. But I honestly, um, I more and more get by with tools that are interconnected. And so I think we are definitely living, the, living in the era of the API and connected mm-hmm. data. And so what I see that has been the evolution of Architosh is what's missing in the AEC industry. And I'll give you some examples. In the very beginning, Architosh was, um, was all Dreamweaver. And everything I needed to do was built around Adobe apps. No go live Cyber Studio? <laughs> uh, no, I, I toyed with it. I really, it was a very hard call. Uh, image that was, ready. That was my jam back then. Yeah. <laughs> sure. That was a great tool. It was very, I, I love that. It was such an interesting tool. Yeah. Then Adobe did buy them and, and then they did the image ready thing. That's right. Yes. And image ready. Um, so I mixed image ready with, you know, some of the macromedia tools that eventually ended up in Adobe's hands anyways. But that whole, by the way, the whole evolution of those two major competitors, yeah. um, Wow. Reminds me a lot of the CAD industries. But yeah. but my larger point about Architosh and these tools is that as time went on, in order I needed to accelerate the workflows. If I didn't accelerate the workflows, I was going to die. I yeah. wouldn't have the time to get it all done. Right. I've had to learn to make things happen automatically, to go full automation, a whole bunch of stuff that I used to do manually. And that led me to, of course, WordPress and and having to choose WordPress out of a field of many similar like tools, content mm-hmm. management systems, and, and make those critical judgment calls about which tool was going to be the more important one. And then, of course, all these apps, that the, the third-party tools that are built around a very successful tool, and having those integrated, again, adding layers to um, the custom solution that is Architosh. Uh, and now I'm trying to get all the supporting tools, the communication, the organization, all those tools like Asana. I'm a big Asana user and with G Suite and Grammarly. And so I love all these connections. And I'm finding that when the right ones come along and they click and they really marry well with another tool, you do improve. They are are force multipliers. And you, you solve a small part of your overall weekly struggle, but in a big way. And I think what's been missing the entire time in the AC industry is that we're not tackling pain points like that and really solving them in a very big way. I think the evolution of CAD has been wonderful, but you and I know that if you're comparing CAD to hand drawing, 
there's certain aspects of production and design in particular where hand drawing is actually faster. And if you were talking about modeling and 3D visualization, if you have hand sketching skills, there's definitely certain things that are faster. So there's been big, big wins, but also sort of a little, a lot of little losses. Yeah. And I think the net of all of that is that the, the AC industry has remained sort of stagnant. And that's just for the A and E side. The contractors have been stagnant for a long time because they're just late to digital. And rightly so, because it's hard to figure that they're on the dirt. So it didn't seem like it had a relevance. But but now we're getting all this stuff together. And yeah. I think integration is what's going to really accelerate everything. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. I, I, I The next question is, who are you listening to? Who, who are you reading? Who's influencing Anthony now? Well, I'm still actually focus on Carlotta Perez, who's a technology historian, and her her techno-economic paradigm or TEP theory model of innovation, and which is directly tied to capital. Um, I'm still kind of munching on that a lot, and because it helps explain the evolution of markets, and she is someone who, as an economist and historian, with with specialty in technology and its role in these giant eras that we move through. And we're in the digital era now, but prior to this, we were in the era of mass manufacturing. We're at this point where we're in the middle of the era. And, and it's a very long period that we've been going through. And one of the things that Pete and I have been doing is trying to award our nods to different tools against the framework that we've been developing for a long time. And Perez's larger framework, which is quite involved, has been a real new uh, important base for our thinking, which really started with trying to break down what was really important about what tools should be doing for the architecture industry specifically, which you know started with social and democratization of IT and, and data, mm. and then the importance of computational power in the cloud. Those two, those two go together. Because you were mentioning a second ago that not all the processing needs to happen on the desktop. That right. that frees us up. So computational power and the cloud go together. But cloud is about, you know, first of all, our data is ours. It's not Autodesk's. It's not some other companies. Not Graphisoft. It's our data, mm-hmm. and it belongs to the stakeholders with these buildings. They're spending hundreds of millions of dollars. So democratizing data, democratizing access to data through cloud. And then to look at tools that buy the process time, because you need time to contemplate and you need contemplation to do your best thinking that's imaginative and creative. And that's still, those three things are still the hallmark of how we see how we're looking at technology, whether it's an AI show where we're giving nods to the best of show or just throughout the year. This is how we're sort of looking at everything. So Perez is a very important piece because um, she goes farther than the the Gartner hype cycle. Um, She adds a larger framework that the Gartner hype cycle sits sits within. And that was really important to to read her and to understand, you know, technological paradigm shifts. That's great. I'm going to have to dig into that because I I have not heard of that before. So I've definitely heard of the the Gartner hype cycle and and included – snapshots of that in various presentations on on you know different buzzwords industry buzzwords but that sounds like very interesting to kind of look at it in an even larger framework so 
I, I'm glad you brought that up because now, now I've got some research to do. Yeah, absolutely. It's really, it's really, you know, there's just real quickly, there's, you know, these cycles tend to be 50, 67 years long. Mm-hmm. Uh, mass manufacturing started with, the, with Ford and the automobile. Right. And, you know, by the time we were in the fifties, General Motors was really the, the most modern organization on the, in the planet. And we're manufacturing more than cars. But, you know, there's a technology trigger. So for the last, the 20th century cycle was the automobile. For the next cycle was the personal computer. And, uh, or you could make, maybe say it was a CPU. And the technology trigger happens during the phase that she calls the installation phase, which is broken into two pieces, eruption and frenzy. So eruption is the technology is invented, boom, new car or or the PC. And the frenzy part, which, you know, these technologies take a kind of incubation period. They're kind of, you know, they're in the lab. No one's really seen. And then they emerge. Only early adopters are aware of them or early adopter inventors. And then the frenzy comes when people realize that this is a killer technology and it's and change the world. The frenzy, then the capital comes in mm-hmm. uh, markets and gets behind the stuff and makes things basically bloom. And then that rides out to a very critical juncture where you reach this peak of inflated expectations, which often coincide. You start to see some consolidation and then what can happen is this turning point and the turning point, the turning points tend to coincide with large scale social change. It could be war. It could just be a very big depression in the case of the 20th century. And and that whole period of mass manufacturing, it turned into depression, which then turned into war. Mm. And then after the turning point is the golden age where there's a deployment. Now of this very mature technology and you start to see synergy where there's a reduction in the number of firms who are offering this new technology. They've kind of matured it very well. And now they're starting to, to drive synergy. And this is the, the golden period because after these big social upheavals, everyone falls in line. Everyone, the old, the old way of doing things is now gone and the new way has taken its place. And there tends to be greater economic prosperity. So right now we're in this period that she says we're sort of in the turning point phase. And to get us to the next phase, the golden age and the the deployment, we need to adopt the green world, essentially, Mm. the Green New Deal in some some sense. We need to to use these new tools that are very mature or or maturing quickly in certain industries like BIM, IoT, 3D printing, energy energy kinds of uh, tools that are, you know, solar and wind and if we do all this together and get behind this direction, we can create a golden age of prosperity for everyone. Mm. But we haven't had that social disruption that tends to happen in the middle of these uh, great surges. And uh, unless you consider populism that turning point, and maybe that is the turning point, and maybe uh, what happens after populism it leads to the golden age. But she's a fascinating read. I highly recommend her, and she has great videos online on YouTube. You can watch her presenter ideas. Fantastic. That's awesome. All right. Final question. Where can people follow along? I mean, we've, we've said the name of the website many times uh, in addition to the website, anywhere else that you want to plug, anything else that you want to plug or ask of our listeners to follow you? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, we have a newsletter that's only a little over a year old 
and it's called Expresso, and it's monthly, and it's focused on uh, specifically MTech or emerging technologies in the CAD industries, um, AI, robotics and construction, 3D printing, computational design, that kind of thing. And that's uh, free. And um, you can find it under uh, on the website on architosh.com. And the other thing is, is to follow us on LinkedIn. Uh, we have an Architosh Readers group. And, uh, and you can follow us uh, also on Facebook. Um, so those are all our, you know, our social properties. We did start, I just started Instagram, um, but it's, um, that's just about, that's just very brand new. So that's where people can follow us. Awesome. I'll have links to all those in the show notes. Anthony, it's been a pleasure speaking to you and I hope that we can continue this conversation. I feel like there's so many more avenues we could go down with Apple and software and, you know, everything that you write about all the time on Architosh. So uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Well, thank you very much for asking me. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.